Good morning. Before we get started, I see the Bowmans are sitting right in front of me. Why don't we get the Bowmans to stand up? This is a first baby born since we have been meeting as a church at Trinity. Luke Bowman is here with us. <laughs> and that is a wonderful first. We had another first on this weekend with uh, Keenan and Caitlin getting married, so this is starting to feel like a routine almost, like things are happening. Babies are getting born and people are getting married. It's wonderful. And we're also marking time this morning with our message. Uh, it's something I've never done before. I'm not sure if we'll do it again, but it, it, the suggestion came up. Uh, have we neglected the Reformation? I, don't, I, I hope not. Uh, but certainly for many of us, uh, acknowledging time uh, is an important thing to, to remember uh, the significance of events, people, places, things that God has used in His history. Uh, and so we want to take one week pause from our Matthew series to do that this morning. Uh, and I want to be clear, what we are not doing is venerating people or trying to get back to some golden era in history, because uh, frankly there is no golden era of history. There's problems in every era of history. But what we can do is be thankful to God for turning on the lights uh, at times in history. Uh, and we want to commemorate the significance of the Reformation and the light of the gospel in light of that uh, this morning. And we're going to do that from Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 2. And we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses this morning. Once you've got it, then I'll ask you to stand in reverence for God's Word. <clears throat> These are the words of God. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he may show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you can be seated. Trust God will bless the reading of his word. So if you were in Sunday school, we went through the historical context of what had happened uh, 505 years ago with the Reformation, which happened on October the 31st, 1517. So that would mark this as Reformation Sunday. And uh, as we started to look at in class, and what I want to pick up now is that the Reformation literally changed the world. It changed the church, it changed people, and as a consequence, it really did change the world. And the world that you have gotten to know is largely what it is because of things that happened in this period of time. In church life, one example would be the modern's mission movement is a most natural outgrowth of this period of time in history. The gospel had to get out. 
Many other things that we take for granted today were hard-earned through much controversy and difficulty in this period of history. And I'll just stop right now just to try to put ourselves as much in that period of time as possible. We look at big figures, we hear names like, uh, you know, Ulrich Zwingli or Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Knox, and we know that there's statues of them and churches and seminaries named after them. But when they were alive, they were not walking past statues and signs to their commemoration on their way to church. John Knox never got to worship at Knox Presbyterian Church in Scotland. These were everyday people. These were real-life people like me and you. And it, the, the urge may be because we see them as these big historical figures that they saw themselves that way, and they did not. They were everyday people like you and me, but used in a remarkable way by a God who does these things. The theology of the Reformation has been summarized in what's called the five solas. You'll see them in your bulletin. And simply put, the solas, sola is Latin for alone. If you go on a solo golf game, you're playing by yourself. So these are the alone statements of the Reformation. And the first one is by Scripture alone. What is going to be our final authority as we look at the Christian life and at life generally? What will ultimately decide right and wrong? What will ultimately decide the direction that I need to go or my family needs to go or that the church or the world needs to go? What is that standard? And of course we say by Scripture alone. That doesn't mean there aren't other legitimate authorities, but this is our final authority. This is our final court of appeal. There is nothing higher that we can appeal to than God's Word itself. And what we find there, as pertains to the gospel itself, is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and soli Dio gloria. The two most important themes in the Reformation were, again, the, the two that it really came down to was authority. What is our final authority? Where do we find our final authority? Is it in the Word of God alone, or is it in some three-legged stool of Scripture, the Pope, and tradition? The question of authority was major. We discussed it this morning. And the question of justification. How are we made right before God? How is man saved? What does God do to save people? Is it by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we just read, or is it through some kind of sacramental system or cooperating with grace? So it's a combination of faith plus works that is ultimately going to make us right before God. And the reason we're looking at Ephesians 2 is because perhaps nowhere in Scripture is the gospel more clearly laid out in its simplicity and in its glory than in these verses. And the issue of authority and of how we're made right with God is always before us. So this isn't just a historical survey. This is practical today. This is practical this week as you go out and attack your vocation, as you lead your family, as you do devotions with your children, as you sing and as you pray. This is practical this week and every other week that you're going to live. In many ways, some have suggested that the time that we live in in North America and the state of the church, the state of uh, even the evangelical church, is just as bad, just as dark, and just as confused as the medieval church was before the Reformation. And... I will not say that that's not true. That may well be the case. In our own age, we all see how the Bible has become one authority among equals, right? Some complex issue comes up, and what do we need? Well, we need a group of people. We need the sociologists there with the theologians to help us through this, right? The Bible is one voice among many. That's how we solve things in our contemporary scene, and that's wrong. Our feelings, of course, have been elevated to a place of authority, which is also wrong. 
And even the clarity of the gospel. How often, even in evangelical churches, do we hear sin treated as though it's some kind of a disorder or a brokenness, right? Making me the victim rather than the perpetrator, right? So rather than me being at war against God in my nature, I'm just broken, right? I'm trying my best. I'm just so broken. I can't do it. And a gospel to that kind of a problem ends up being a kind of a life coach gospel. If my problem is that I'm basically good, I'm trying hard, but I just need to get a course correction now and again, in that case, a life coach would indeed be adequate to solve my problem. But that's not what this just said was my problem. My problem is I'm dead in sin. I'm dead. I need a savior, not a helper. And how clear does that gospel ring even in evangelical churches today? Not as clear as it ought to. So let's look at this. The first three verses here, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Has anyone else noticed Paul's not rushing to the good news? You notice he doesn't start with smile, Jesus loves you. These verses are here because we need to feel the weight of the problem. We are by nature children of wrath. We're dead spiritually. The biblical presentation of the gospel almost always starts with the bad news. Because we have to know what our problem is. We have to know what we're saved from before we know how we're saved and what we're saved for. You've heard me say this before, but I won't tire of saying it. Grace is only as amazing as the problem is radical. Grace exists in direct proportion to how big our problem is. And again, if the extent of our problem is that we make mistakes occasionally, or we need a nudge to get back on track, Oprah could help us. Dr. Phil could help you. But if we are dead in sin and at war against our Creator, a life coach is not going to cut it. A Savior is adequate to that job, and a Savior alone. A Redeemer, not a Helper. Scripture addresses our problem as being dead. And of course, this isn't referring to physical death, where we can't move or we can't think. It's referring to spiritual death, what's inside of us. Because we are born under the curse of Adam, we are, by nature, cut off from God. We are cut off from spiritual life by nature. And this is a topic that frequently interests people. Why do we do what we do? Because a lot of the things we do, it's not even conscious. It's just by reflex that we just act a certain way. Why do people act the way they act? It's an interesting topic always. Why do we choose what we do? Why do we act the way we act? How does this work? And it is clear from Scripture that God does hold us responsible for our choices and that the choices we make are real. Does this mean we can choose anything? That we can act in any way? And our society clearly thinks that we can choose anything, even in the most ridiculous and radical extremes, uh, is human autonomy in our culture. Uh, It wasn't enough just that we can imaginarily change our gender. Now we can even change our species. I've I've heard of cats and dolphins in uh, in a friend's classroom. Right? So human autonomy or human choice has been elevated as though there's no external controls on us. There's no limitations on human nature. So our society does tell us this. And we're catechized in this all the time through movies and through music and through popular entertainment. We just absorb it all the time. That's why we're intentional about trying catechesis in this church because catechism instruction is inevitable. 
when I was a kid and I'd watch Family Ties or I'd watch Growing Pains or whatever, I was being catechized because the laugh track always came on when dad tried taking charge. Okay? I learned by catechesis that it's a joke when a man leads his family. That's catechesis. That's learning by repetition. That's how I learned it because the laugh track instructed me. Catechism is inevitable. We're surrounded by it eight hours a day in our classrooms and our entertainment. So it's no wonder we think we can choose anything. But this view ignores the reality of who we are. It ignores the nature of man. If we were absolutely free without any creational restraints, we could just as soon choose something we hate as something we love. And our choices would or would not, in that conception, reflect the disposition of our hearts and of our minds, which would end up making our actions and our choices spontaneous and random. How could God hold us accountable for something that's essentially random if it's divorced from my nature? In this view, our actions and our choices could possibly be divorced from our nature, from the disposition of our hearts. And so in an ironic twist, those who promote this kind of absolute libertarianism, or what is almost anarchy, have the problem of explaining how God could hold us accountable for something that doesn't reflect who I am. It's just arbitrary. It's just spontaneous. It's not grounded in reality. It's not grounded in the nature that I came here with. But here's one of the problems with that. Even God cannot act contrary to his nature. Are we going to say we are more free than God? God cannot not be God. God cannot say something that is evil is good. He cannot do it. Even God himself is constrained by his own nature. Would we be freer than that? No. (laughs) But I'm glad you're thinking. For our choices, for our actions to be meaningful, requires that our choices reflect accurately what's happening in our hearts and minds. They do reflect our nature. And this text tells us that. It describes us as the following. The passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Our choices and our actions are meaningful because they do accurately portray what's happening inside of us. And this is consistent with Jesus' teaching on relationships between outward fruit and the inner essence. Don just read in Matthew 7, uh, 16 through 20, that we recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. We all know that we're complex beings, and we often have competing desires. But here's the thing. At the point of action, or at the point of decision, you always choose what you most strongly desire. Your choices always reflect what's happening inside of you. And you're thinking, no, that's not true. I do lots of things I don't want to do. I always give the example of my alarm clock going at 3.45 in the morning, so I go milk my cows. All things being equal, do I want to be up at 3.45? No, I don't. But I go to the barn anyway. Why? Not against my will, but because my will to take care of my farm is stronger than my desire to sleep an extra hour or two. We always choose what we most strongly desire. This is an inescapable concept. Your actions and your choices reflect who you are accurately. So if you're not sure what your theology is, watch your life. That will tell the story of what you believe. What's inside of us comes out through our mouths and our fingertips, consistent with the way Jesus talks to us. 
And here it says that our nature and our desires are pinpointed as the heart of the problem. Our problem isn't merely external. Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 2 is telling us that the problem is our nature. Your nature's the problem. You are the problem. I am the problem. The natures and desires of our hearts are disordered. And without the gospel, we do follow the course of the world. We do follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the age. Why? Because we want to. We want the wrong things. We have a deep problem. Our minds and our bodies want what the world has to offer because we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I want you to reflect as we start this passage. Is the bad news actually bad? It's bad. Okay, the diagnosis is in and it's bad news. It's terminal for all of us. We're all dead in sin by nature. But for the gospel of Christ to shine, for us to put the amazing back into grace, we have to confront with the seriousness of this problem. We're dead, it says here. We're unable to please God or to bear good fruit. Not because we can't think about the options, but because we don't want the right things apart from the grace of Jesus. Our minds and natures are fallen. We want the flesh. We want the spirit of the age. And dead people cannot resuscitate themselves. So these opening verses show us a radical and devastating need right to the core of us. We are going to need a savior from outside of us. And mercifully, we do. We need a deliverer. We need someone who can answer the the problem for as big as it is. Again, a little problem requires a little savior. A radical problem requires a radical savior. And then it says in verse 4, but God. And these are the sweetest and most comforting words in all of Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, always look through your Bible and read, but God. These are the sweetest words you will read in Scripture. But God. Once the problem is clearly laid out, we shift to the solution. But God. And so often, when we let the Scripture speak for themselves, it confronts us with who we really are. It pulls no punches in telling us that we prefer to serve ourselves than to serve God. We'd rather be a slave to sin than a slave to Christ. We trust ourselves more than we trust the Word of God. And the biblical authors clearly want their audience to feel the weight of sin and to pull any pretense that we may have rather than than leave us there. The good news always comes after the bad news. Law, then gospel. Wrath, then grace. Truth, then mercy. This is the way it must be. But God... This is the hinge. And these are the most powerful two words in all of Scripture. It goes on. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And you'll notice that dead men don't bring themselves back to life, but God can. God takes initiative because of his great love. He makes us alive. We read about this cause and effect all over in Scripture. How many of us learned the Bible verse from 1 John 4.19 when we were children? We love because He first loved us. God is the cause. God turns on the lights. And it's because God has made us alive that we see our need. That we, that <clears throat> for us as saved people, we see our need. And this, is, in fact, is the first point of our conversion. I'm always struck by the lyrics to Amazing Grace. The one line in particular, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" 
If you're scared of God, praise Jesus that your eyes are open. Okay? People that need to be scared of God typically are not. And people that don't need to be scared of God often are oversensitive in their conscience. But the moment at which this changes is when we have the eyes to see, wait, so I need to be scared of God? Yes, you need to be terrified of the hound of heaven. If you can see the problem, that's when change can happen. That's when the gospel grips your heart. That is the moment of conversion. We need to see our need for this gospel. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making me scared, but just for a moment, because once we're in, we have nothing to fear. And that's why this talks about these things for us as Christians in the past tense. Go back and look at these first three verses. You were dead. You once walked. You were, by nature, children of wrath. And we see some of the reasoning behind God's actions here. He does this because he's rich in mercy. And then once we are spiritually alive, he makes us alive together with Christ. And this is significant because this isn't just a solo performance. It's always in union with Christ. And that's why adoption and union with Christ are such common themes in the Bible. Because this isn't just, of course, salvation and conversion happens one by one. It is personal, but it's always in union with Christ. Jesus is our older brother. He walks these steps for us. And then as we are in union with him, Christ also raises us from the power of the grave. God raised Christ from the dead after he defeats the power of sin, hell, and the devil, and Christ is raised as our older brother. He leads the way, and then everyone after him who is raised to life is following in his footsteps. And his victory over death is the basis on which God raises others out of that same death. He does this one by one. Okay? This is personal. You're not saved because of who your dad is, and you're not saved because of how sweet your grandma was and what a dear saint she was. But at the same time, a personal gospel is not a private gospel. It doesn't leave us isolated. We shouldn't see ourselves, and I've used this metaphor before too, but we shouldn't see ourselves as a group of greased BBs in a bag, and each one kind of touches each other, but ultimately they're all disconnected. That's not how it works. The fact that we are individual people is more like we are leaves on a tree. Each one is distinct, yes, but we're all bound in the same branch, in the same root. And that's the kind of language that the Bible uses. We are individual, yes, but we are connected. There's no lone ranger Christians. We are connected to Christ, and we are connected to each other. Christ is the root which connects all of us, and so our coming to life is only possible because we are now an offshoot of Christ. That's why the Bible frequently uses this grafting and cutting off language. If, we are, if we're going to have life, we have to be connected to the root. The root of the matter has to be in us, and that is Christ. And this is where, in our own time, people often think this is narrow. So you're saying Jesus is the only way? I have a lovely atheist friend who is, frankly, far more moral than my Christian friends are. And if that's the case, that's too bad. Christians should live like Christians. But is this narrow? Is this narrow? Think of this. God made us out of the dirt for the sole purpose of glorifying him. And we wage a war against him. And he sends his only son to live and suffer and die and be raised over the grave of hell for you. And we're going to say that's too narrow? God, you haven't done enough? Do more? Is that our answer? Of course it's narrow. There's only one gate. But does God owe even that to us? And of course not. How could there be salvation in anyone else? 
Buddha and Muhammad and Gloria Steinem and Oprah and Richard Rohr did not die for you. They're useless for your salvation. If Christ is the root of spiritual life, and he is, how would we find this life anywhere but by being rooted in him? This is not too narrow. This is our only hope. Paul then pauses his thought and reinforces his point before moving on. If you look at uh, verse 5 here, you'll see a hyphen in the middle of this thought where Paul kind of pulls everything up and he says, By grace you have been saved. And what's between the hyphens is a comment which is kind of suspended over this train of thought and which explains all of it. So if we would pull that out and just read the thought on its own, it would say, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So our coming out of the grave follows Christ coming out of his grave, and our being seated as heirs in heaven follows him being seated in heaven. And so the thought between the, hy- uh, between the hyphens is a comment on the whole thing. It's all by grace that this is happening. It's by grace you've been saved. We can't pull this off by peddling harder or by trying harder or by lathering up a deeper emotional experience. We cannot pull this off. It's by grace. It will happen by grace or it will not happen. Verses 6 through 8 says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So being raised and seated, have spoken here again in the past tense. But then in verse 7, there's talk about the coming ages. So we're looking at the future, the present, and the past. And this is a common theme in Scripture. Scripture often speaks in past, present, and future terms about our salvation. We were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Okay? And there is a past tense to your salvation. It has already been accomplished in one sense. If you read Revelation 13.8, it talks about the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. So you were in God's mind before the world came into existence. Christ actually did what needed to happen for your salvation 2,000 years ago. So in one sense, if you're a Christian today, your salvation happened 2,000 years ago. And in another sense, if you were converted in 1997, your salvation happened 25 years ago. So there is a past element uh, in all of our salvation. You were saved. There is a present reality as we work the salvation out in our lives, as we grow in holiness, as we are sanctified, as we put sin to death so we can become more Christ-like. And in this present reality, the old man is slowly but surely dying as the new man is slowly and surely being raised up and gaining strength. And of course, then there is the future reality as well, in that our fight with sin and with the old man is completed only at our death. At death, the old corrupt nature is finally all the way dead, never to come back. But it gets better than that. The unnatural separation between body and soul that happens at our death is only temporary, just like it was for Jesus. When Christ returns, bringing the new heavens and the new earth down with him to perfectly consummate his rule and his reign in creation, our bodies are raised back up to life. The ultimate Christian hope is resurrection in a new creation. Body and soul are back together with no threat of sin, sadness, corruption, or disease. And so what Paul is doing here is pulling some of that future glory back into the present to show us it's a present reality even if it isn't yet perfected. We're seated with God in the heavenly places now in a very real sense because we're united to Christ. 
And Christ ascended back to heaven, body and soul intact. And he's interceding there for us. So in a very real sense, we are already seated with him in glory, even if we haven't got there yet. If we have a taste of this future glory now, how much better will it be in the age to come? And then verse 8 and 9, these are familiar verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so here the whole plan of redemption is distilled down into one familiar passage. Salvation is by grace. It's freely offered and it's freely given. There is no personal merit involved here. God is not moved by things that we do, but he is moved by his own nature and his own desire to be kind and merciful. Salvation is through faith. And faith, of course, is the instrument by which uh, salvation comes to us. This is the tool that we use to have salvation applied to you and to you and to you. This is what makes it personal. Through resting and trusting in Christ. And faith is not something we perform. Frequently, faith in our time is talked about as though it has almost magical properties. How many times do you hear even an unbeliever saying, well, you just got to have faith. Just got to have faith. Okay. Faith in what? Faith in me? Faith in faith? Faith that it'll all work out? What's the object of your faith? Okay? Faith is not magical. Faith actually does nothing. The object of our faith, okay? Putting our trust in Christ, receiving his promises, that is saving faith. That's the kind of faith that the scriptures talk about. Faith in itself is as useless as good wishes, okay? The object of our faith is what matters. Receiving the promises of God. maybe one way you can think of how faith is an instrument like this is uh, think of plugging in your fridge uh, and you've got the the cord and the end of the outlet. Uh, Does that cord produce power? No, it does not. That cord does nothing until what? It's plugged in. (laughs) Then it receives power. That is saving faith. Saving faith is not ginning ourselves up to do something. It's not an emotional exuberance or outpouring. It is the empty hand that receives the power of God, that receives forgiveness for sins, that receives the power to put sin to death. Faith is an open hand that receives. And this is emphasized when it says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And when the original Greek here says, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, If you read Greek, you'll notice something weird happening here. The this and the it are in a gender form which don't match anything that comes before it. Faith, hope, and salvation are in feminine language, and the this and the it are in neutral language. So it doesn't, so what's the gift here? The only answer is that it's the whole package. Okay? The the faith is a gift, the grace is a gift, and the salvation is a gift. The whole thing is gift. It's all grace. The whole thing is grace. That's what Paul is saying when he says it is the gift of God. The whole package. Everything is gift. And this means that when it's saying that this is not our own doing, it's talking about the whole package. The whole thing is by grace. We receive these things by grace without our additional good works, without our additional contribution, without us helping Jesus. And this must be what is in mind because Paul couldn't be any more forceful or clear. Paul says that it is not by our works. Because even if the last 5 or 10% was by our works that pushed us over the finish line, we would have something to boast about. right? Even if it's just the last 5%, it was still me that pushed myself over the finish line. But we have nothing to boast about. 
we have much to be thankful about. And Paul is zealous to show us that the whole thing is by grace for the glory of God. The conviction of sin, that being born again with a renewed heart and new desires, comes about as a miracle by the Spirit of God. And the whole package is a gift so that God and not man gets the glory for it. We need to remember where God has placed the power for all of this to happen. It's in the gospel itself. We read about that this morning, how Luther's eyes were open to this when he read Romans 1.17, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, the time uh, people thought the righteousness by which we're saved is our own good works, helping God out. That's the righteousness. Luther saw that the righteousness by which we're saved is Jesus' righteousness applied to us, and we receive it by faith. But notice closely, God packs his power in the gospel. And how many times do we get sidetracked with gimmicks and tricks to desperately try to get people into church, right? And that's why you have cowboy churches and heavy metal churches and, and, and so forth. But here's the problem. What we win people with is what we win them to, <laughs> If they're only in your church because they're a metal head and this is a metal church, you didn't win them to the gospel, you won them to heavy metal. But they didn't need to be won to heavy metal because they already liked it. Okay? If we win people with gimmicks, we're winning them to gimmicks. They need more gimmicks to stay interested. Okay? We need our trust in the gospel. It's the gospel where God has put his power. Scripture could not possibly be more clear. Gimmicks are out. The gospel is in. If we want long-term fruit, it will be through the gospel or it will not be at all. We need confidence in the gospel to let it do its work. And historically, this is how it's always worked. Every time God has been pleased to do something significant with his church, it has been through the power of the preaching of the gospel. One of my own heroes, George Whitfield, in the first Great Awakening, making 13 trips back and forth by ship between Great Britain and North America, and he would go preach to anyone, kings and paupers alike. Benjamin Franklin was his good personal friend, never became a believer, and he paced off. And he said, sometimes Whitfield would speak to 30,000 people, I estimated, just by the power of his voice, by the power of the gospel. And Whitfield was always preaching regeneration. You must be born again. And it got tiresome to at least one man who came up to Mr. Whitfield after his sermon, and he said, Mr. Whitfield, I really like your preaching. You're very eloquent. But I have a question for you. You always speak about the rebirth. You always say you must be born again. Why do you do that? Whitfield looked at him and said, well, because you must be born again, (laughs) okay? We can't do this on our own. We must be born again by the Spirit of God. This is dangerous, but one other story about Whitfield that I think is important. (laughs) David Hume, the uh, the British philosopher, would also go hear Whitfield, not because he was a believer, uh, but because he just saw something in Whitfield. So he'd always go hear Whitfield when he was back in England and preach. Uh, And one person asked him, well, you're David Hume. You are the chief unbeliever in England you don't actually believe what Mr. Whitfield is preaching, do you? And he said, no. But unlike all the Anglican preachers, he believes what he's saying. (laughs) That's why I'm going. At least he believes it. (laughs) Okay? And who knows if that ever did bear fruit in Hume's life, maybe. But we don't know. But these were men who were convicted by the power of the gospel, not by gimmicks, not by tricks, not by lasers and light shows, by the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone. And then it says here, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And this is the one last statement in this section, and it further lays out God's motivation for saving us. The reason for salvation isn't just so we can get personal fire insurance or so that our soul can escape creation and we go to heaven when we die. And of course, if you do get hit by a highway tractor the day after you're saved, you will go to heaven. Yes, that is true, of course. But the ultimate goal here, the reason God gives for saving sinners is to put himself on display to display His glory. In saving us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what He is doing is showing us His own glory. The glory of His kindness. The glory of His love for His creation and for His Son. And He saves us so that we can bear good fruit. We're not saved by our good fruit. We're saved for our good fruit. He saves us so He can be glorified in the lives we live. So that we can show that we really are His workmanship. And so the aim of personal salvation most certainly includes the joy and the benefit and the peace of the sinner. Yes and amen. And we can know, as Don read this morning, we can have assurance, we can have peace with God. But the ultimate, final goal is not man-focused, it's God-focused. It's so that God will be glorified in His creation by His creatures, both now and in the age to come. God created a world and put people in it so that they could glorify it by being his agents of dominion. And our first parents fell and put us in this mess. That's why we have the natures that we have. They marred the purpose for which the world was created and for which man was created. But God has not abandoned his creation and he has not abandoned man. Rather, he is now getting that glory through his son. That's how dominion and honor and glory come is by his son, not by Adam. So as the gospel raises dead sinners to life so that they can bear fruit, God being glorified, and the gospel is filling the earth with glory until he returns to perfect it, to set up his eternal and final peace on earth, and to raise our dead bodies back to life to enjoy it all again in a form so incorruptible that not even our first parents knew it before the fall. And so this is the point, and the high and lofty doctrine suddenly becomes immensely practical here. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works. Because the purpose of God in saving people is for Him to be glorified, the proper response for us is fruitfulness. And this can take many forms. Of course, it involves sharing the free offer of the gospel with all. We want to bear fruit that way. We want to be evangelistic. We want to get the gospel out to the nations, whether it's at the coffee shop or helping support foreign missions. This gospel needs to go out and to be offered to sinners. But it also includes more difficult things, like putting away anger, covering a neighbor's offense, putting sexual temptation to death instead of flirting with it, taking the time to make a new friend, praying for someone in need, helping one another with practical things. And so practically, one of the monumental changes that happened in world history as a direct result of the Reformation was that suddenly the line between sacred and secular was destroyed. Previously, only the professionals could go up to the front of the church, and congregational singing could actually get you in jail. And why do we sing as a congregation? Now, why is this such an emphasis? Because we're all... (laughs) equally having access to Jesus Christ. There's this thing about the priesthood of all believers. This is a communal project. All in the church have equal access to this gospel. 
So the world was no longer seen in an upper spiritual tier and then in a lower carnal tier, where if you were a spiritual person, you went to full-time Christian ministry. And if you were a carnal person, you probably got married and became a blacksmith or something carnal like that. The unleashing of the gospel freed society to see that all of life is to be lived for the glory of God. Yes, your marriage. Yes, your children. Yes, your day-to-day vocation. Okay? So God hasn't abandoned his creation We are in his creation as his agents to glorify him, to shine the light on the world. So here's the things, and this isn't an exhaustive list, that we do for the glory of God. Driving a truck, filming a movie, teaching math, delivering a baby, serving food at a restaurant, wiring a house, practicing law, playing piano, feeding chickens, plumbing a bathroom, fishing in Alaska, milking a cow, talking your girls, or taking your girls for a horseback ride, playing football, swinging a hammer, taking your boy golfing, laughing with your wife, visiting your grandma, hunting deer, paddling a canoe, pouring concrete, coding software, and doing a crossword puzzle are all important. Why? Because God's saving the world. (laughs) Okay? Nothing is immune from God being glorified in his things. Everything we do must be done for the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's why he gives us things to do. Because God is committed to getting glory in his creation. We are immortal people, and so nothing we do is ultimately insignificant. Right now does count forever. It counts for eternity. And when the medieval people got a hold of this, work was approached in a whole new way, as was family, as was government. Thriving economic and educational transformation occurred because of this. Monarchies suddenly became republics because of a renewed sense of the sinfulness of man. And if man is really as sinful as the Bible says, we don't want power concentrated in one guy. Let's spread it out as thin and decentral as we possibly can. That's why we have the customs we have. That's why we don't have kings. We have governments. We put laws into writing so that we're ruled by laws and not by men. And particularly laws which were grounded in God's law. And that's why we pray for our leaders' eyes to be open so that they can rule well. The economic system of feudalism was transformed into open markets because men started to live like free men. You have a free gospel, it makes free men. They want to do free man stuff. It makes a difference in the world. And you've heard me say this before, but if you picture a map, first world countries, second world countries, third world countries, there are exceptions, but when you're looking at first, second, and third world countries, what you're looking at is Protestant countries, Catholic countries, and tribal countries. It does have world-changing consequences. We approach everything differently, okay? Even work and even family becomes work on behalf of Christ and for his glory. And we might be discouraged in our own time with how the gospel is once again being eclipsed. How the institutions and the customs that were built by our great-grandparents have been under attack. And the sun does seem to be setting on our society, and I see that as well. But think of this. There's another way to look at this. This is the history of the world. Things were awfully dark before the Reformation as well. And think of the customs and the the, the institutions that have been built. We've been on full tilt war against our grandparents and against reality for the better part of a hundred years, and it's still largely, to a significant degree, intact. Okay? This is more resilient than we might think it is. We shouldn't lose hope. God is frequently pleased to work in impossible odds. He frequently delivers just after the nick of time. And that should fill us with hope as we take on the duty to pick up this task and bring it into our own time, to our own circumstances. We can't control when and where we're born. 
We can't control the circumstances around us, but we are commanded, no matter when and where we find ourselves living, we are commanded to live for God's glory, to see how the gospel frees men and women to live as they were designed, to treat your family and your work and your everyday stuff that way, to shape the people around us and the little history that we do get to touch. Most of us are going to die and will be forgotten within a few short years, but we touch history on either side of us, from the customs of our grandparents and the habits and the customs we are passing on to our children and grandchildren. All of us touches history in a significant way with living, breathing people. And the way you live your life is going to affect those downstream from you. So we do it for God's glory. So whether or not we see God do something big on a larger scale again, or it continues to go the way it does, has been, we have a duty to bring reformation about in a smaller scale reforming our personal morals. Our family customs is prayer and devotions and Bible reading. Would your children get the idea that it's a priority? Your children get the idea that Sunday morning church is non-negotiable, but hockey is entirely negotiable? Customs matter. Habits matter. We want church reformation. We want churches, of course, to be reformed according to the Word of God. And we want vocational reformation. We want to take our work on as though it matters to God. And personal evangelism is best supported when customs and institutions serve to strengthen and upgird it. So we can't just treat personal evangelism as though it's unrelated. Our habits are going to either build that up, strengthen that, or it's going to tear it away and say this isn't credible after all. <clears throat> and so when we apply this, of course, personally, but also to our own church here, we're praying not only for a building, but we're also praying for an awareness to sound doctrine, to staying in the text of Scripture, and for a culture of love and passion and faithfulness. And the culture part is just as important as everything else, because the culture that we create and the way we treat other people is either going to undergird all that sound doctrine, or it's going to make it look like a joke. So customs do matter. Culture does matter. And this is how we are going to keep the flames of Reformation alive. The power plant, the boiler, and the engine for all Reformation, whether it's personal, family, church, or wider, is in Scripture alone. In the story of how God redeems sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for His glory alone. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank You for Your Word. I want to thank You for sending Your Son Lord, to win back that which we gave away in the fall. Lord, to be our older brother, to pave the way that death will not have the final say, that corruption will not have the last say, that sorrow and darkness will not have the last word. Lord, and I pray for all of us that through your spirit, through the miracle of the rebirth, through being born again, that the scales would fall from our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear our need for you to be deeply impressed by it, and then to gladly receive and personalize the promises that you make to your creation to save us to the uttermost. Lord, and I pray for each one here, if there's some who do not know peace with you, Lord, show them your gospel. Open that heart that your gospel would land and take root and bring them all the way. Lord, and for those of us who do know you, who do have peace with you, I pray that we would consider the way our habits and our customs and the way we treat our work and our family and our friends and our church. They're all communicating something about you. 
Lord, and I pray that we would communicate truth in these areas, that you would be glorified in our lives, in your church, and in your broader creation. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful. Help us now, again, to not make idols out of times or out of men, but to have the eyes to see the glory of your gospel and that it would transform us from here to eternity. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Receive the charge. The prophet Isaiah says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I shall accomplish all my purpose. This doesn't merely mean that God is aware of the end from the beginning, but that he is constantly taking action to bring that end about. He created the universe in order to bring glory to himself, and that glory is heightened by the gospel. God will have honor, dominion, and glory, and he receives it through the power of the gospel of his Son. We enter into this glory by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of it is for the sake of God's glory alone. As Christians, we move from glory to glory, from receiving the glory of God's kindness to displaying that glory ourselves as we live lives which honor Him. So this week, as we move to our regular routine with our families and our regular vocations with regular people, let's be intentional about approaching these things in the light of eternity. There are no insignificant people and there are no insignificant tasks. All is to be done before the face of the one who has all power, dominion, and glory forever and ever. Amen. And receive the benediction from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And go in peace.